This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Good evening. Uh, welcome to tonight's event. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Chen. I'm the president of the Berkeley Forum. Uh, we're really excited to have you here with us today uh, for tonight's event with uh, Mayor Willie Brown. We're excited to be co-sponsoring this event with the Goldman School. We're a nonpartisan student-run organization here at Cal uh, that hosts free talks, panels, and debates for the Berkeley community with a wide variety of speakers across a diverse set of fields. Now I'd like to uh, introduce Dean Henry Brady of the Goldman School. Uh, Henry Brady is the Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy and Class of 1941 Monroe Deutsch Professor of Political Science and Public Policy here at Cal. It's now my pleasure to welcome him to the stage. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, great to have you here tonight. So this is the Michael Nacht lecture that we have uh, annually to honor my predecessor as Dean Michael Nacht, who is sitting in the first row here. Michael is the uh, Thomas and Allison Schneider Professor in Public Policy. He served as Dean of the Goldman School uh, from two, 1998 to 2008. Uh, he laid the groundwork for a lot of really great things that I've been able to capitalize on, and I, I feel so lucky to have him as my predecessor. He was a marvelous dean, did a great job, and I've been lucky enough to be able to follow him and build upon what he's done. So I really thank you, Michael, for all you've done for the school and for Berkeley. <laughs> Willie Brown, as you probably all know, served as mayor of San Francisco from 1996 to 2004. He was speaker of the California State Assembly from 1980 to 1995, where he was tremendously successful. Um, and it give you an idea of Willie Brown, the, the, the San Francisco Chronicle recently said, Willie Brown can herd cats in a rainstorm being chased by Rottweilers. <laughs> That's Willie Brown. Um, about almost 40 years ago, I think it must have been 1982, Jerry Brown was running for Senate, and my wife and I went to a fundraiser for Jerry Brown, and it was held in an auditorium, and it was pretty dark, and suddenly they announced Willie Brown, and he walked on stage, and my wife and I turned to one another and said, did a spotlight just come on? And the answer was, no spotlight had come on. Willie Brown had walked onto the stage. And that's Willie Brown, luminous and a luminary. And I give you the Honorable Willie Brown. <laughs> Mr. Mayor. Dr. Brady, thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I'm just you know, delighted that uh, you, of the opinion that I somehow cause light to shine. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever been introduced that way. Usually people immediately think I'm bringing darkness. Um, you did mention that I uh, work for a living now writing a column uh, for the Chronicle. Uh, and it, that came about because at some point in my life, uh, I had a good friend named Herb Cain, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Chronicle for 50 years. In the early years of my political life, I was represented by a PR person, and she uh, played tennis every 
week or so with Herb Kane. If he had uh, no other tennis partner, he would get her to come play tennis with him. And she kept insisting that he had to meet this young guy that uh, she had been uh, really interested because he was going to run for public office and could possibly have a great career. Well, her obviously had been sold a lot of times by a lot of people on all kinds of things, and he pushed back, but she insisted. Marion Conrad insisted. He finally said, okay, but only if you keep playing tennis with me. I showed up for this lunch that she arranged with, with she and Herb, uh, and halfway through the lunch, he dismissed her and said, uh, I think you have something else to do. Willie and I need to talk. And that relationship lasted forever. And he worked for the paper that absolutely hated me. They full-time did everything they could to try to defeat me, never endorsed my candidacy uh, for anything. <clears throat> they, each time that they would do something negative on me, Herb would write a column. And it turned out that more people read Herb than read the paper. And <clears throat> so when I became the mayor of San Francisco, they really upped the writing. They assigned two or three people to check on everything I was doing and following everything, I was, reporting on everything. And Herb was busy constantly refuting it uh, or offer a better explanation of putting the proper spin on. And one day somebody asked him, Herb, uh, what is it that were you and this guy, Willie Brown? He said, uh, he's an interesting, clever fellow in that uh, you can learn a lot of things if you just listen closely to him. So said, how'd that all start, Herb? Herb said, uh, when I first met him, introduced to him, a week or so later, I saw him in a restaurant called Bardelli's in San Francisco. And he was with another black gentleman and a very attractive lady. Now, I knew that Willie Brown was married, uh, but uh, I wondered about this attractive lady. I didn't know about the other guy. So he sent over a note thinking that I was the beard for my friend. And he sent over a note, and he said, uh, who is the beard? And I sent back to him, she is the beard. <laughs> From that moment on, I never had any more trouble with her. He was always where he should be on every issue. Go on to become a great career, as I find, defined it, in world of public life and public policy making. And Herb dies. And the Chronicle took a turn for the worse for a long period of time. People not reading it, digital coming along, etc. And they were desperate because they used to have an array of columnists that were unbelievable. That was the reason you'd read the newspaper. The reporting was not very good, but the columnists were just terrific, creative fellows. And uh, they lost them all. They either died or they got a better gig someplace and what have you. I leave the mayor's office. The first thing that happened is the Chronicle comes to me and said, Herb was always high on you. We'd really like to have you kind of do a column 
reminiscent of her. And I said, for your paper? He said, yes. He said, yes. <laughs> I said, well, no, I, I, I won't do that. that would be, no one would understand uh, my going to work for the Chronicle, going to work for Hearst. Are you kidding me? And they said, no, 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 we really want you to do it. And they kept asking me, and they kept asking me. And then one time, there was a fellow named Warren Bushy, who worked, he was ahead of the Chronicle, he asked me for breakfast. And I went to breakfast with him, and he said, do you mind if I record this breakfast conversation? I said, well, I assume that's what you've always been doing anyway, so now thank you for telling me. And he did just, just that. I got back to my office, and about two hours later, a person delivered, a messenger, delivered a column. It was called Willie's World, and it was each one of the subject matters that I had covered. It was food, it was movies, it was clothing, it was incidents on the streets and what have you, all in kind of Herb King fashion. And he said, this is what Willie's World would look like if you would do it. I sent him, I called him up and said, I love the column. <clears throat> I'll do it on two conditions. One is, you never touch it. I sent it in. You don't have to print it, but you can't edit it. I, I got him. So he said, well, wait, wait, just a minute. My lawyers, are, I, no, no, no. The lawyers cannot approve what I have. You, if you are concerned, don't print it. And he said, what's the other condition? I get paid one more dollar than anybody else who writes for your paper. <laughs> just one more dollar, no more than that, just one dollar more. And I knew that my relationship would last maybe six weeks, eight weeks, maybe to the election, because it started in July of 08. It's been that long. I am only now required to write. I cannot even go on vacation without doing a column. They claim that people will stop reading the paper if they can't look and find what movie to see, or what clothing to wear, what restaurant to go in, what homeless person to talk to. They ask all those kinds of questions, and it's frankly fun to do the column. And I do the column because it's the kind of thing that happens here tonight. I can pretty much say whatever I want to say. I don't care about whether or not it's accepted. Uh, I must tell you that I didn't realize Richard Goldman had funded the Goldman uh, program here. Uh, Richard Goldman walked into my office uh, shortly after I was elected mayor of San Francisco because at the inauguration of my mayorship, I had uh, listed the people that I wanted to hold positions in my administration. And I started with the fire chief. Um, and I selected the plaintiff who had sued the fire department of San Francisco in federal court to integrate that department. And the consent decree was literally in his name. I said, he's the fire chief. I then uh, didn't like the police chief at all. And I knew that the Chinese community expected upward mobility since they had voted for me as if I was Chinese. I named the Chinese police chief. And then I knew that in my world of being able to entertain and do what I needed to do, I didn't have any money, so I named Charlotte Schultz, 
who has a lot of money. Uh, and I named her protocol person. I didn't realize Richard Goldman was the protocol officer for the city. He came into my office the next day and said, I've been fired, you fired me. I said, well, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, and he said, I like the way you operate. He said, so I'd love the opportunity just to meet with you once a month to give you my views on world affairs, on public policy, and all those things. I don't like to do protocol anyway. And I developed a friendship with Richard until his death. He was one of the persons whom I would call up to get reaction from. And if he knew that I was here tonight, he would want to make sure you should know one thing about him. The idea that I'm spouting around the country these days about why foundations should not be continuously and in perpetuity allowed to hold on to all their wealth. They ought to be required not only to spend what they earn annually, or they want to do something in a philanthropic way, but they should begin to rotate the rest of their money back into the system so we can address the issue of poverty without having to impose full-time upon the taxpayers since we now provide them with so much money by way of the non-tax-exempt status. That is something that Richard Goldman started lobbying me to do years ago. Well, as long as I was running, I wouldn't do it. But when I was no longer running, I could do it. And so I'm doing it in memory of Richard. And he would love for me to have told you that story. Tonight, however, I come to you <clears throat> having predicted in June of 2015 that Donald Trump would get the nomination of the Republicans. He had a fill of some 14 or 15 others who were running. And I knew on looking at each one of their history, their thought processes, that the nature of who this incredible man and his ability to express himself really was, I knew he would dwarf each and every one of them. And he did so. Then I projected that there could be a surprise for all of us because he could defeat Hillary. Not because Hillary was not the best qualified, but the nature of how people vote in this country doesn't go as often as it should to the best qualified candidate. There's something else about how voters ultimately make up their minds. And if you are able, even with limited ability and skill, to convey that component that moves voters, you can get their blessings and end up winning. Because after all, whether they, if they don't vote sometimes, it concedes to whomever your opponent happens to be because he may be able or she may be able to move his or her voters in a very handsome way. I knew that Trump had that skill and that ability, and I knew my friend Hillary. And I had known Hillary and Bill. It was 1972, uh, I believe, when I first met uh, the two of them, uh, my candidate, president at that time was a fellow named George McGovern. I had given the closing speech to get him the nomination, and of all places, Florida. The Democrats had no business having a convention in Florida, but they did, and I got a chance to nominate 
uh, participate in the nomination of George McGovern, a young California legislator, chair of the Ways and Means Committee, doing battle constantly with Ronald Reagan over everything. And as a result, of, I had led the delegation along with John Burton and Dolores Huerta. They gave me that spot. After all, California was even big and important in those days. Part of what I did after he got the nomination was move around the country. In this case, I was moved to go to Texas, and I went with Robert Culp, the man who was doing I Spy with Bill Cosby. Cosby was unavailable, and we figured people in Texas wouldn't know the difference <laughs> if Brown and Culp showed up, and we sure did. But what was good for me is that was the first time I'd ever met Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. They were the two people running the state of Texas. It was the beginning of a friendship that has lasted till this day and probably will last until each of us have passed on. Great friendship. Two of the most talented people that I've ever met. She more talented than he, in my opinion, intellectually. An incredible human being. She would have made one of the best presidents ever in the history of this country. But she does not have that component that voters really glom onto. Voters don't naturally love Hillary. They seem somewhat threatened by her. They seem somewhat turned off. They resent her. They're jealous of her. All those kinds of things. Well, with Trump, he didn't have any problem having anybody jealous of him. He was, and, and, and still, we don't, we're not jealous of him. He was really like, um, he was like the guy next door. He was like the guy that repairs uh, in old days would repair your refrigerator if it needed it. Now we just replace them. We don't repair them. Uh, he had all of those kind of qualities about himself. <clears throat> and I knew that that could be the way in this system to end up electing a president, somebody like him. And sure enough, he won. And it was frankly horrible that he had won because he won with fewer than a majority of the votes he won with fewer of the people in this nation supporting his candidacy, and he won on the end of a cycle that had been orchestrated probably by dedicated Republicans who only had one thing in mind, stop Obama. Stop Obama was the theme for McConnell and the whole crowd, and they worked at it for a few years. We Democrats did not do what we should have done, and that was begin to be creative begin to think in terms of tomorrow, begin to get new people, get new blood, offer better opportunities, and be careful enough to make sure in the process we offended as few people as possible. We didn't do that, and the results were by the time Hillary's candidacy surfaced, serious candidacy surfaced, after being defeated by Obama uh, earlier in those years, it became very clear that we were in a situation where we were in trouble. And the trouble was we lost. Coming out of that process, however, we did begin to rethink. Democrats began to look differently than they had in the past. They began to make room for people like the people who advocated under the banner of social Democrats. They began to think about some creative ways in which to answer the needs of people. And they had one thing that was crystal clear, and it cut across all the lines, and that was the health care 
advocacy that had come from the passage of the Obama health care bill. So it was really an opportunity of great order. We lost, obviously, with Hillary. We lost before that uh, in the Obama world. The Obama operation did not lend itself to assisting Democrats as universally as they needed to in order to make sure every state house, every legislative body in the nation, every city had some flavor that came with it that could translate into something that we could build upon. We didn't have that. But the Social Democrats, led by Bernie Sanders, began to raise that opportunity. Young people began to see us a wee bit different. The whole business of communicating better by where the social media process was engaged in. But the Obama administration and the Obama operation politically did not build for a legacy of people getting elected following in the Obama footsteps. And so for two or three election cycles, we lost everything. We lost the House. We lost the Senate. We lost all the opportunity. However, Mr. Trump gave us the opportunity to recover. His operation of our federal government, his operation of the systems is such that suddenly we begin to think differently and the voters begin to think differently. We come to the midterms. Nancy Pelosi did what she needed to do. She put together the resources. She made the opportunity to be attacked readily available to Republicans. And it's kind of amazing what happens with people who attack some of the leaders. I suffered from that mightily when I served as the Speaker of the California State Assembly. With regularity, a Democrat running in Bakersfield had to endure indicating that he was owned and operated by Willie Brown. And as a matter of fact, my photograph in those districts were more prominent and on display than the candidate. And we used to instruct the candidate, be very clear, don't defend that photograph. Defend the issue in the district and you will survive. And that has proven to be true. And with Nancy's operation, it's proven to be true as well. She put the resources together and those resources produced a real dramatic movement. She allowed for the opportunity for people who might disagree with her on policy, which might disagree with her on urban versus rural, who might disagree with her on a number of other things, to be equally subject to the benefit of the machine that she put together and the operation she put together to get elected. And it has paid wonderful dividends because in each one of the steps with the burden of carrying Trump, he has been so bad, he has been so indifferent to what it what this nation really looks for, that he's limited himself to the 36 or 37 percent of the vote that he got in the first time he won nationwide. And if he didn't understand the necessity of building beyond that collection of people, there will be golden opportunities all over the country, properly orchestrated with quality candidates on the Democratic side of the aisle to actually win elections. And sure enough, that is exactly what occurred. Where Hillary didn't win in Michigan, we now have a governor of Michigan, a woman, and we have a lieutenant governor of Michigan on the same ticket, a black man. Literally, Michigan is now back in play as a potential 
for the Democrats in 2020. Same kind of experience is happening in the state of Wisconsin. Obviously, we had been gotten our heads beat. We tried to recall Walker. We tried everything in the world to defeat him on two separate occasions. He tried to run for president. I think he was one of the first the potential nominee on the Republican side of the aisle that bailed out. We knew that his nature of his politics were similar to Trump's politics, and that if we played it right, we could take him out, and we did. And interestingly enough, we were fully funded, and we were funded because so many people on our side of the aisle had gained enough wealth to be able to produce in the same way that the Republicans had been the beneficiaries of the Koch brothers' money, beneficiaries of Sheldon Adelson's money, and a whole host of right-wingers who just put any amount of money up. We certainly had some Democrats, some persons on the liberal side of the aisle, some former Republicans like Bloomberg and others who were willing to do the same thing for quality Democrats throughout the country and to do so directly, not through a series of PACs, but to do so directly. And clearly, we were able to do that in places like Kansas. We were able to do that, and and we demonstrated it could be done by what we did in Alabama six or seven months earlier, or more than a year, when we got Jess Sessions' old seat as a U.S. senator. We won that. We won the state of North Carolina in in a similar fashion. And so it was clear we were in position to really do some good victories if we followed that same agenda. And we followed that same agenda, including in the state of California. Republicans are so bad now in the state of California that they, are, they literally deserve, I suspect, the same assistance that extinct birds and creatures are getting from us in terms of government protections. There are so few of them. Uh, in the Bay Area, for an example, there's only one elected Republican, and she is only leading by under 200 votes as we speak. Miss Baker, who is on this side of the Bay, and the count may very well count her out. There may be zero Republicans in and about the San Francisco, the nine-county Bay Area will see no Republicans. And the same thing is happening in other places. Just think, nobody in his right mind would have ever assumed that in this century, we would be able to have things happening in Orange County as dramatically as they are in races for Congress. That's all Richard Nixon's territory. That's territory that has been Orange County Republican forever. Suddenly, Democrats are winning in those respective places. And then across the nation, seven governorships changed hands. More than 300 Democratic legislators won in states where they should not have won. And so suddenly we are moving in the right direction so that when 2020 comes around, we may very well be in a position to produce a candidacy that will get us the presidency back and hopefully save the nation. In California, it's interesting, is in shape to be a big participant in it. We just, we happen to have at least three, three, prospective presidential candidates or national ticket candidates. We've got a U.S. senator named Kamala Harris that is one of the stars moving around the nation on behalf of Democrats and doing the kind of things that need to be done. She comes primarily from having worked like hell to get Obama elected after being the DA of San Francisco and the attorney general. 
we've got a new governor, person whom I appointed to the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. I made six such appointments. Only one of them has shown any quality, so I should not be permitted uh, <laughs> to appoint. My appointments have just been terrible, but Newsom has turned out to be okay so far. He has uh, won the governorship, and clearly he is already being identified as a potential national ticket person. And then there's, of course, the, the mayor of Los Angeles, Garcetti, obviously an attractive, interesting candidate, and he comes from the largest population base in our, in our state, and he is or, in charge of Los Angeles with virtually zero opposition. So we got three people that may be on the ticket. And the interesting thing about that prospective ticket is there is also diversity on the ticket. We got an, a woman coming out of New York who is a, is, is, is a uh, member of the Senate uh, coming out of New York. She may very well be a candidate. We got a black guy coming out of New Jersey. He may very well be a candidate. We got a black guy who was the governor of Massachusetts. He may be one of the candidates. We've got candidates coming out of our ears from all over the nation all wanting to be uh, the nominee for, for us. We ought to be very careful to make sure that we do the things that need to be done as we did in this midterm elections, the way in which things orchestrated and we got at least five seats in California out of the seven we sought. It appears that we're going to have five. We got four for sure, and it may be the professor from Orange County uh, running against Mimi Walters may very well be our fifth person winning uh, on Nancy Pelosi's side. We may very well be doing the same thing in other parts of the country in the same way. We obviously won't do much, I don't think, in Florida, because Florida's nature of vote counting is just kind of amazing in and it of itself. I was talking to Brother Brady during the course of prep for this presentation, and we both laughed about how uh, the change in Florida for vote counting has not altered itself in the last two decades, although in every election they have real trouble counting votes. You'd often wonder why, with the technology that we have today, every time I go to the ATM and put my name and number and all that stuff in, and I put in, I want $52, it comes back, you're only eligible for 48 uh, and that's all I can get. Well, it seems to me in that second or so, with just that little bit of information, and they didn't ask me about my signature, they didn't ask me about any of that. They just simply assumed it was Willie Brown based upon the identity. That identity has gotten even better. Well, we have facial and we, have, we can do thumbprints and all those kinds of things. In the voting business, we should have implored and adopted all of that a long time ago, and it would instantly eliminate the need to wait for a count and wait for the results. I said to someone earlier, or the alternative, we could do it like it's been done in Chicago for years. The election is held, polls are closed, they announce the results, and then they do the count. Uh, so it makes it so that you don't have to worry about hanging chads or anything of that nature. You simply count till you verify what you've already determined. That obviously is one of the ways in which we could get away with all this counting. Even in California, we're still counting. And we're into something called ranked choice voting. I just, on the way here tonight, I got a call from Maine. 
there's a congressman that they've been doing ranked choice voting in Maine all this time. Maine is about the size of Berkeley. I don't know why, for vote purposes, I don't know why it would take so long, but this Democrat finally won in the ranked choice voting process. And in San Francisco, we have this so-called ranked choice voting. I wish we just got back to one vote, one candidate for everybody, and we would not have to debate who, when, where, because the results would reflect themselves. And so I hope that as we go forward, we will learn and implement from what we did in the midterm process and get ourselves in a position so that in 2020, we will have a candidate that rivals a man who has not achieved one additional vote since he won with 36 or 37. Not one additional person is prepared to vote for Mr. Trump. And that's a good thing. But we've got to make sure we get people prepared to vote for our candidate or my candidate, maybe not some of you, but for my candidate in a fashion that will allow the results of 2018 to reflect themselves in 2020 and in that series of elections. I am looking forward, frankly, to it. It's going to be fun, campaign-wise, as soon as we can figure out who the nominee will be from the 20. I hope it's Miss Harris, but if it isn't Miss Harris, I'm going to work just as hard, uh, regardless of who it is, because I want desperately to see uh, Michael back doing what he did for Obama, what he did with Clinton. I want to see some of the graduates of the Goldman School doing what they did in government. I want to see qualified people exercising the privileges and the power of this democracy to make life better for everybody. And I do believe that agenda will produce a president that we'd all be proud of. Thank you very much. So with the first two questions uh, will be by the uh, head of the Berkeley Forum, which we're co-sponsoring this event with, and it's Tanya Mahaward. Tanya. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much, Mayor Brown, for spending your evening with us. To start out, you mentioned the wide diversity of candidates that could be projected to run under the Democratic banner for the 2020 elections. As a seasoned politician under the Democratic Party, what role do you believe that diverse political candidates could play in helping create cohesion within the Democratic Party itself? Well, I, I don't think candidates will ever spend a, a lot of time trying to do party business. Candidates do candidate business. They try to get themselves elected, and they do what's necessary to get themselves elected. Obama is a classic example of that. I said in my remarks that his operation did not spend a whole lot of time trying to orchestrate the process by which uh, people would uh, be able to get elected under his guise and under his leadership. So candidates don't do much of that. Uh, it's important, and I think that there are people who want to be party chair, and they really ought to do that, and they do ought to do it with gusto. But candidates, I suspect, would have trouble getting elected if they spent full time trying to defend the party platform. 
going to be my last question before I turn it back over to Dean Brady. In an October 20th edition of your column, you describe democratic socialists as politicians who rely on the traditional democratic vote without wanting to undergo the process of building their own party infrastructure. With the 2018 midterm elections, Democratic socialists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib gained seats in the House and rose to public prominence. What role do you believe that these Democratic socialists could play in expanding the voter base of the Democratic Party? Well, I'm not sure that if they simply become obedient to the Bernie Trump component uh, of what we're about on the Democratic Party side. Uh, for an example, the woman's name you just uh, give us, mentioned, I think it was maybe Tuesday, she was in a group of more than 20 people who stormed Nancy Pelosi's office, making demands that Nancy not run for the job. And she was very proud of that course of conduct. She was, Nancy should not run to be speaker. It's one thing to oppose your, your, your party speaker, but it's another to do what she did. And so I have uh, real reluctance uh, to say that if you want to run, you got to run and you got to sell yourself not only to the social Democrats, you got to sell yourself to Democrats, you got to sell yourself to Republicans. You got to sell yourself to everybody, uh, period, because you're going to be, if you get the power, you're going to be operating on behalf of all people, not just those people who supported you. You really got to operate on behalf of all people. Trump is the example of someone who operates only on behalf of the people who supported him. And that's a bad thing for this democracy. The day you win, you really ought to be prepared to be, represent everybody. And, and uh, I don't like the idea that uh, someone who calls themselves a social democrat will step in and run against uh, a, a democrat, period. Get your own party, do your own thing, and I will applaud you for that. But when you come in and you... Uh, take over, in, uh, attempt to take over my party, uh, I, don't, I don't like that at all. And I'm going to do my best to keep you from doing it. Thank you, Mayor Brown. Tanya, thank you. And thank you to the Berkeley Forum for uh, co-sponsoring this event with us. Uh, it's a real thrill to be working with the students on these kinds of events. So you mentioned Nancy Pelosi, and one of the questions here asks, and I'm going to amend it a little bit, but say that Nancy Pelosi, actually political scientists feel that she was a very successful speaker and she got a lot done. Uh, at the same time, I think increasingly, though, people are wondering, what can she and other party leaders do to promote young rising stars ahead of the 2020 election? Uh, and is there a, a, a time for her to sort of step aside soon so that she could allow other people to move forward? Well, you know, in the, this business of holding public office, I don't know anybody who steps aside to let somebody else... <laughs> take their gig. That's just not realistic uh, to think in those terms. But does it worry you that the, the leadership is going to be uh, young by your standards, but nevertheless in the 70s? You know, people, people like me. 
uh, and I feel like I may be too old to be leading. Well, uh, if you think you're too old, you are. Okay. If you think you're too old. Okay. What you got, in my opinion, the issue is whether or not I can market Willie Brown with the uh, voters. Yeah. And if I market Willie Brown with the voters and they embrace me, I believe that in this last round of races involving the midterms, I think we were able to penetrate old people, young people, and when I say old people, seniors, young people, millenniums, or whatever they call themselves. I think we were able to get educated people, uneducated people. I think it was clear that the candidacies is what led ultimately uh, to the success uh, that has been enjoyed. And I think it's a mistake to raise questions about whether or not somebody is too old. You're too old if you can't do the job. You're too old if you can't sell yourself. You're too old if you can't, as a matter of fact, you can be 25 and can't sell yourself. You're too old. You know, that's just the way it is. So age is, should not be a deterrent to people participating in public policy. And the question of your skills, your ability, your energy, your willingness, your stewardship, all of that ought to be what's measured. And to argue that uh, a Nancy Pelosi, or at, uh, she's not 80 yet, I don't think, is too old. Uh, <laughs> here's Nancy Pelosi is able to get uh, people uh, who are Republicans defeated with a Democrat. These many of the advocates that you describe in your question are challenging Democrats in the Democratic Party. Go challenge enemies. The Democratic Party members usually are not enemies. If they are, they ought to be replaced. Clearly, they ought to be replaced. If they're incompetent, they ought to be replaced. But if we spend time doing internecine warfare, Republicans are going to end up coming back. Thank you. So you talked some about Mr. Trump and, and his failure to, to really move beyond his base coalition and his failures to really do a good job of governing. Do you worry about the fact that he's broken so many standards about how you govern and calling the news fake news? I'm, I'm waiting for him to call the, the new Democratic House the fake house. Uh, and... Is that something that you worry about, or do you think that can be fixed in 2020 or starting in 2018? I think you replace Trump, and it's over. Nothing he has done is institutional. Literally, nothing he's done in this democracy is institutional. Because he doesn't believe it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the only guy I know that can pass a lie detector test, and he's lying. Uh, that's because at the time he takes the test, he believes that lie. Yeah. But shortly thereafter, he no longer. And that's the lie machine measures you for truthfulness uh, at the moment. And so his conduct is such uh, that uh, he is not having an impact institutionally in changing things beyond correcting. We can correct it. And believe me, now that Nancy and the Democrats are in place, he will be reduced to just being a megaphone. He will not be able to get anything bad moved 
period, unless he tries to do it by what you call uh, executive order. He may try that, and he may continuously try that, because after all, he doesn't know anything about the rules or the regulations or the Constitution or what have you. I think he's firmly of the opinion that he was elected czar, and, and that uh, with that goes all the power. And that's a thing that we can utilize uh, to offset him. And in California, we've been doing that. If you got Trump um, anywhere near you in California, you got a burden to carry that will not change one vote on your behalf. So you've been Speaker of the California Assembly, so you've uh, herded cats in a legislature. What do you think Nancy Pelosi should be doing right now to herd those cats to set the agenda for the Democrats in the House? You know, the uh, line and do you think you, she can do it? All right, let's start with the line you used about herding cats. My daughter introduced me about two, three weeks ago at a breakfast with a thousand people. She's 17 years of age. She's high school senior, mock trial captain, and she decided she'd introduce her dad at this breakfast where Mr. Newsom and Mr. Cox, the Republican nominee and the Democratic nominee, was speaking. And no one has ever done that. So she just stepped up to the plate and said, I'm going to introduce my father. And she had that quote from a buddy of mine who, who described me in that fashion. And that's what you saw in the Chronicle. That was a quote from my daughter, Sydney, <laughs> that came from somebody else. And now you ask, what should Nancy Pelosi be doing? I think Nancy's doing what she needs to do. In the capacity of the leader, if you're like I was at one time, you're the speaker. You're the speaker of the House. That's 79 other members. You select the leadership uh, on the chairmanships, and you do so with the consent of your own caucus, and you do so hopefully with people qualified uh, to do their job, and you try to convey that. You also make it very clear that under all circumstances, as the arbiter of the rules and the disputes, you are going to render judgment based upon obedience to those rules. Precedent, best advice, best counsel, quality arguments. And if you do that, then you are going to find a house that can be managed by the speaker. One of the reasons why the, there is a no requirement that you be a member of Congress to be the speaker. People don't know that. You can be the speaker without being a member of Congress. You don't have to be a congressperson. You got to have been voted by members of the Congress. And it was done that way because the speaker's job is to run the house, keep everybody with the rules, be the person who makes the rulings, sets the calendar, sets the agenda, and to do so with the idea of solving problems for the nation, solving problems for all the human beings. That's Nancy's job. She's got to convey that to all of the people, including that collection of people who ran for office on the basis they would never vote for Nancy Pelosi. That ought to be a negative for anybody who runs for office to say, if I'm elected, I will never vote uh, for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. You've got to say, I'm going to vote for the best qualified person. I'm not going to pledge to vote for Nancy. I'm not going to pledge to vote against her. Because the other candidate may be Trump for speaker. So what do you do? 
You said you're not going to vote for Nancy. You didn't say anything about Trump. It is one of the dumbest things to do is to say who you're not going to vote for. You ought to say who you're going to vote for and why in terms of qualifications and then let the candidates fulfill those qualifications to get your vote. Nancy should now be demonstrating that quality of leadership. So now there's maybe two paths she could follow. One thing is she could focus a lot on oversight hearings and investigating various aspects of the Trump administration. Another thing she could do is try to get a legislative agenda together and pass bills in the House, which are going to die in the Senate, presumably, but at least might lay down a marker for what Democrats would be doing in 2020 if they got control of the Senate and the presidency. Which of those two strategies would you suggest or some mixture of the two? She should do both. Okay. She should. That's her job. She should do both. Things need to be corrected mm-hmm. legislatively. She wouldn't be doing her job if she didn't step up to do that. If the process of all of the representations that are being made uh, by folk about the, what occurred in 16, what is in fact occurring continuously in relationships with the, with, on the treaties and things of that nature, she needs to investigate and have the benefit of the information or have her people do it and not with the idea that you're trying to find a way and your motivation is to impeach Trump. No, that's not your motivation. Your motivation is to get at the factual information that will allow for quality decision making. I am convinced that Trump, in order to make sure we don't get pence. Right. <laughs> You better leave Trump there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Period. So, so just uh, have oversight, have oversight, and also have a legislative agenda. Uh, what you kind have of, to have. Right. No question. And what are the issues that that legislative agenda should include? What well, should they be doing? Well, the legislative agenda has got to elevate poverty to the highest level in this nation. People who are not being paid for working, people who are not uh, receiving uh, from government or the benefits were needed if they're eligible because of the standards and the rules uh, for that eligibility. Um, we need to elevate the level of consideration for those kinds of things. And I'm almost certain that that attention will cut through all of the party nonsense that blocks legislation. Uh, For an example, the Republicans are now, and any day of the week you're going to find Republicans claiming that they are for Obamacare. They are taking pieces of Obamacare that everybody agrees was needed and was passed and should have been passed, particularly that which is uh, pre-existing conditions. They are all trying to embrace and become associated with it, even though some of their people are in the courts trying to stop it. Some of them have voted negatively on other occasions. Suddenly, they're finding that the health care issue is so much a part of keeping you out of poverty, if it's appropriately addressed, and that many of their people are in that category, they are 
eager uh, to be a part of that effort. I suspect that there are other similar issues that needs attention and that will get attention and that will pay political dividends for those who embrace it because it's answering the needs of people. I don't frankly believe that simply having the economy as robust as it is uh, and, and for those who benefit from it. You know, my, my 401k has taken hits like you wouldn't believe and I don't understand what my managers are doing. It's a modest 401, but in the last three, four weeks, uh, it has dramatically uh, gone south on me. And it's not because we have stocks, we have money invested in PG&E, as, uh, you know, or some of the other places that are going south. But it's clear uh, uh, the economy uh, is uh, robust, but not universal. And part of what the agenda ought to be is exactly that. Trying to, trying to figure out how to make the economy more equitable and, yes. and to help everyone. Um, so given the kinds of issues that are out there, what would have happened if Donald Trump, as his first move, instead of trying to go against Obamacare and then later having a tax cut, instead had done a big infrastructure bill? Do you think that is the kind of policy that he could have uh, maybe won a broader coalition with? And why do you think he didn't do that? He doesn't, well, let's start with, I don't think Trump believes in anything, period, except himself. I think he believes whatever decision he makes without good thought, without quality advice, without great information, he just makes the decision instinctively, and it's usually a bad decision. And so I don't think he would have, under any circumstances, ever embraced the idea of trying to do something positive that would affect everybody. If it doesn't affect Trump directly, he couldn't care how it affects anyone else, period. And that's why he didn't do what he should have done. I do believe that there would have been uh, fewer opportunities, let's say, to replace uh, the... uh, Uh, Republican control of the state of Nevada. Democrats did that. I don't think the lady in New Mexico would have been made the governor of that state uh, without the liability of Trump. I don't think the U.S. senator from Arizona who won the seat that uh, Flake pulled out of, I don't think that would have happened without um, uh, the liability of Trump. Uh, I don't think Stacey Abrams in Georgia would have done as handsomely as she did that benefited a series of congresspersons seeking office in Georgia because of the increased interest and turnout and what have you. It was anti-Trump like you would not believe. Anti-Trump policies would you like not believe. And a black woman won the seat that uh, Newt Gingrich formerly had mm-hmm. in Georgia uh, in a non-black, among a non-black constituency. All of that was anti-Trump. And I do believe that uh, the Texas uh, uh, case involving O'Rourke, um, he came so close uh, to knocking out uh, Ted in Texas uh, at Cruz. Uh, I think that the, those increased numbers were reflective of being anti-Trump. And so I think that if Trump had not made himself such a negative with the public generally, or and if he had tried to build on his 
36 or 37 percent that he is going to have and keep. I, and if he had not made it crystal clear that race and gender is a problem for him, I don't think we would have done as well as Democrats did uh, in the midterm. So let, let's talk about race and gender, because clearly they've been at the center of a lot of American politics for a long, long time. Uh, and on the one hand, we have situations like Charlottesville, uh, where Mr. Trump seems to say, well, there's good on both sides, which seems to suggest that he was endorsing white nationalism. Um, and on the other hand, we have all of these uh, black and, and Hispanic and, and women candidates who seem to have done well in this round. How do you evaluate the, the state of race and American politics right now? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Where are we? Well, uh, I would have to tell you that Race is an issue. Yeah. Race will continue to be an issue in spite of outstanding examples over the last 25, 30, or 40 years of the demonstration of skill, ability, and equality in people of color. Uh, there has not been an institutional change in how America deals with race. There's a number of individual operations that deal with it differently, but it's not institutional. And I'm just hopeful that the results of the votes in 2018, where Muslims were elected, um, transgendered were elected, lesbians, openly lesbians, got a gay governor in, in Colorado. I'm just hopeful that uh, that's the beginning of what maybe in the lifetime of my children will be a significant institutional change on race. I do believe that Trump in part got elected because he managed somehow to convey his acceptance of the status quo on race versus trying to pursue institutional changes. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I've got to tell everybody in the audience, I feel like I'm sitting across from a genius, and I really mean that. Uh, this is an extraordinary person I think you've seen it tonight. Uh, it is true that when you walk on a stage that the spotlight seems to go on even when it's not there. There actually are no spotlights up here right now, by the way. It's all light reflected from the Honorable Willie Brown. Uh, and I want to thank you so much for being here tonight. And uh, let us hope that what you said in your answer to the last question is right. Let us hope that we can do better uh, and move forward on the really original sin of American politics, which is the problems of race uh, and discrimination. So thank you so much. Thank you.